A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 187. Hey, Big Spender. Last time, we covered the Pechenegg Wars, the decision to forcibly move an army of nomads to the eastern front backfired in a most spectacular way. Not only did the Romans fail to reinforce their eastern border, they created a new enemy to the west. This was a hugely significant event, one which is often glossed over when people recall Byzantium's 11th century collapse. As I said at the end of the last episode, the strategic situation had now changed significantly. If you cast your mind back to, say, the 920s, when Simeon was the Bulgarian Tsar, there was a decades-long period where the Bulgarians kept defeating Roman armies in battle and raiding their lands without much resistance. In order to secure the peace, Romanos Lecapinos had to acknowledge the Bulgarian use of the imperial title and marry his daughter to Simeon's son. These were major ideological compromises, and they were made because the Bulgarians were doing so much damage and the Romans couldn't spare any more soldiers to fight them. Why? Why were there no soldiers available? Because Byzantium knew that the real danger was in the east. The raids of the emirs of Melitene, Tarsus and Theodosiopolis were far more threatening to Roman interests, and no one was sure at that stage that full caliphal armies would not return. So the cream of imperial forces were stationed permanently in Anatolia. The reason that Zimisces and then Basil II were able to defeat the Bulgarians was that they had finally shut down the Eastern Front as a source of danger. Byzantium was a wealthy, organised state, but it could only really concentrate on one enemy at a time. Military campaigns were a logistical headache, they absorbed all the attention and resources of imperial bureaucrats, and fighting on two fronts at once was financially and politically too straining. So, now in 1054, with the strategic situation returning to a pre-Zimisces Basil II scenario, what should the Romans do? 
Well, in theory, they should abandon Europe. They should move all their best soldiers east to deal with the Turkic nomads who present the greater threat. But to do this would mean abandoning the people of Greece and Thrace, leaving them with only local thematic defences. The likely result of this would be the re-emergence of a Bulgarian state, possibly in alliance with the Pechenegs, and thus a threat to the walls of Constantinople, which would then return Europe to being the front in most need of a defence force. Now, of course, I'm using hindsight quite liberally here. At this stage, in the 1050s, it was not at all clear that the Turks would be returning in force every summer, as they eventually would. But I thought it was important to emphasise this change in strategic geography. Even when the Romans realised how dangerous the Turks were, their hands were tied in terms of how many Western troops they could spare to send east. As we discussed last week, Monomachos responded vigorously to the Pechenag crisis. After every Roman defeat, he moved more men from east to west and recruited fresh troops. Despite the poor performance of the imperial armies, they did eventually wear the Pechenegs down. The nomads knew that if they kept fighting, superior Roman numbers would one day prevail. Unfortunately, this relentless recruitment and five-year-long war had cost the treasury dearly. Every time a soldier died in battle, he had to be replaced. That might mean a new horse, new gear, and new pay, when you'd already given the now deceased man his year's wages. The annual pay of a soldier was something the government could reasonably afford, but when soldiers went on campaign, they had to be paid again for that particular mission. So when you fight a war that goes on for half a decade, you are doling out huge sums of money every summer. We've already seen that the government was struggling to finance the expanded empire. The various tax revolts in cities in East and West the return of tax farming, and the imposition of cash taxation in Bulgaria. In part, the government was struggling to keep up with the expansion of economic activity across Romania. Trade was generating more and more revenue, and the Byzantine tax system, based largely on assessing the land, was failing to take its fair share of the proceeds. Monomachos was in a bind, the treasury, it seems, was empty, yet he still had to recruit more soldiers to fill the vacant posts in East and West, and he now had to make extra payments to the Pechenegs and the Romans living north of the Hemus Mountains to ensure the peace. His choices in terms of how to raise more revenue were limited. According to one source, state salaries had already been reduced by a small amount, any further reduction would anger his officials. And Michael IV had already added a surcharge to the land tax, so a raise there was politically difficult. Basil II's law that made the wealthy responsible for arrears of taxation in their neighbourhoods could have been restored, but again this would provoke resistance from the magnates, a group that the militarily inexperienced Monomachos was keen to keep docile. 
The emperor therefore chose the least painful way of creating more coins from a limited supply of gold. He debased them. Debasement meant a reduction of the amount of gold in each coin. Silver and bronze would be fed into the mix to maintain the consistency and some of the colour, and therefore more coins could be minted from the same batch of gold. There are so many questions about Byzantium that we just can't answer. Scholars have to read between the blurry lines to draw tentative conclusions. Coins are one of the few blessed areas where we can offer concrete answers. Modern numismatists have been able to analyse Roman coins and work out the exact amount of different metals in each, giving us a pretty accurate picture of debasement across the centuries. I've put up a table on the website if you want to see all the details, and of course there was natural variation in most issues. But generally, the nomisma, the Byzantine gold coin, contained a gold content of about 97% for most of its existence. The first debasement we notice came in the reign of Constantine Porfiroyenitos. Notably, this was the period when Roman armies first went on the offensive on a consistent basis. The next change came during Michael IV's reign, with the gold content of coins slipping to 90%. This caused a few caustic barbs at the time, uh, because Michael had been a money changer, a profession perennially accused of debasing coins in order to turn a profit. The next drop comes in now, right at the tail end of the Pechenegg Wars, as Monomachos reduced the gold content down to 87%. Monomachos was gambling. Could he pay his bills, collect enough to put his house in order, keep peace on the borders, and then, in theory, go back and stabilise the gold content? He must have known that debasement could lead to problems. The Byzantines knew their coins well. Merchants weighed them to work out their true value, and everyone could see, even though it was subtle, that these coins did not possess the fineness of their predecessors. Not only did this affect confidence in the government, but over the long run, people would hoard their finer coins and pay tax in the most debased issues that came to hand. This meant that gold was slowly seeping out of the treasury, piece by piece. If the bad times continued, as we know they will, then the almost inevitable result is more debasement, as the government tries to pay out the same salary total from a diminishing supply of precious metal. Clearly, Monomachos felt he had no other choice. You may remember that Nicephorus Phocas had created a lighter weight gold coin to help fund his expansion plans. This lighter gold coin, the Tetatataron, was still in circulation and we suspect being used to pay mercenary troops. It too was now debased, essentially forcing a pay cut on certain units of the army. Given the rebellions he'd faced down already, this is a move Monomachos would not have contemplated unless imperial finances were at a breaking point. 
There seems little doubt that this move was forced on the emperor by the Pechenegg Wars. And interestingly, it isn't mentioned by Selos or the other historians writing about this period. They must have known it was happening, and certainly the historians writing when Nicephorus Phocas issued his new coin uh, made sure that we knew about it. Perhaps there was grudging acceptance of the necessity of this debasement after so many Byzantine boys had marched off into Thrace and failed to return. It's something of a tell that Selos doesn't mention the Pechenegg Wars at all in his history. Given what a disaster it was, you'd think that he would want to get some well-aimed kicks in at Monomachos's ribs, but instead silence. Presumably because Pselos is building a picture of Monomachos as lazy and neglectful of the army, a story about how the emperor ceaselessly raised cash and new recruits to defend the empire doesn't fit so well into that narrative. Accusing the emperor of wasting money, though, was something Pselos was happy to do. Two decisions in particular, taken before the Pechenegg Wars, get detailed treatment. We need to take a look at both and discuss how they might have fed into this financial crisis. The first was Monomachos's decision to build a huge new church complex. As we've discussed before, since the imperial mausoleum was now full, subsequent rulers had built or refurbished churches in order to both house their remains and honour their memory. Pselos sees this as a waste of money and the type of selfish extravagance that a good monarch would avoid. Naturally, Monomachos provides the worst example of this, building a lavish new foundation in the heart of the capital. Do you remember the fantasy story I told in episode 166, where a dying man imagines a journey around Constantinople, guided by St. George? The story ended with the young man seeing the icon of George in the church dedicated to the saint in the monastery of Mangana. It was this church and monastic complex which Monomachos rebuilt on an imperial scale. Mangana was an area near the ancient Acropolis of Byzantium, the site of the Topkapi Palace today. This prominent spot in the city drew attention to the new foundation, and Monomachos was determined that it should be suitably magnificent. According to Pselos, the first rebuild wasn't flashy enough and had to be knocked down in order to further aggrandize the site. The result in the end was impressive, a beautiful church with exquisite decoration throughout, surrounded by extensive gardens. In addition, a series of other buildings were erected to form a small community. A monastery, of course, with associated houses for the sick and elderly, but also imperial apartments and offices which could be used for legal and business purposes. By describing the impressive structures in detail, Pselos is drawing our attention to the cost of all this. As he says, gold flowed from the public treasury like a stream bubbling up from inexhaustible springs. The church was doubtless expensive, but not remotely costly enough to bankrupt the treasury. 
Also, it had been started well before the Turks and Pechenegs came on the scene, so it's hard to blame Monomachos for lacking foresight. The Emperor's second major item of expenditure is potentially more damaging, but far harder to quantify. As I mentioned last week, the Vasilevs had pleased the people with his generosity. Handouts and promotions for all had followed his coronation, and he had continued to be a generous benefactor through the early part of his reign. These gifts were one of the reasons why the people stood firm on the walls in the face of the army of Leo Tornikios. All emperors began their reign with generous gifts to the church and people. It was common sense to keep everyone happy at the most vulnerable point in one's career. But Monomachos is accused of taking it to extremes. As you know, the Byzantine government paid its bureaucracy, army and elites every Easter. It was a beautifully literal ceremony where the proceeds of tax revenue were used to buy the loyalty of the most powerful members of society. Now, the richest prizes brought with them high responsibility for administering or defending the empire. But many a bauble was handed out to political grandees to soothe their egos, which came with no obligation at all. The accusation levelled at Monomachos is that he upset the balance of the system by extending the handouts to those lower on the social scale. The first hint we get of this actually came earlier during the reign of Michael IV. It was alleged that the Paphlagonians, formerly money changers, had started putting their old buddies from the marketplace on the civil lists. Now we hear the same said of Monomachos, that he opened the doors of the Senate, i.e. the payroll, to those of lower classes who had never been allowed to join in the annual giveaways. If we march forward in time, we see other emperors accused of doing the same, and that by the time the Turks overrun Anatolia, the honours system was no longer fit for purpose. The government couldn't afford to pay all the new ranks of notables who were entitled to collect their salary. So looking backwards, it seems obvious that it was Monomachos who broke the system by foolishly buying political support at the expense of the state budget. But let's not jump to any hasty conclusions. Pselos provides no facts to support this claim, and it's very hard to know exactly what was happening. First of all, we should remember that this was a time of economic expansion and prosperity. Some of the capital's merchants were now just as rich as the aristocrats who turned up their noses at them. These men were pushing for political recognition, and now they had the means to become a constituency worth paying attention to. Second, this was an era of people power. The population of Constantinople had overthrown Michael V, they had insisted Zoe and Theodora rule together, they had threatened Monomachos when he brought his mistress into the palace, and they had defended the walls for him against Leo Tornikios. The people were flexing their muscles. It was only natural in this atmosphere for politicians to seek to mollify them. And third, Basil II's decision to groom no successor had left this series of emperors in a very vulnerable position. 
With little legitimacy between them, each new regime looked to buy support wherever it was available. Naturally, then, the most powerful amongst the urban population were courted and offered the chance to take part in the rituals of the court. We've seen six new regimes begin since Basil II's death. Constantine VIII, Romanos Ahiros, Michael IV, Michael V, Zoe and Theodora, and now Constantine Monomachos. Each began their reign with generous handouts and promotions. It seems possible, based on the evidence we have, that each new ruler added more men to the civil lists, leaving their successors with a larger and larger payroll. But even if this is true, it might not be as foolish a scenario as it sounds. You see, the government only handed out free stipends to those too politically powerful to ignore. For lesser members of the nobility, the option was there for them to buy their way into the system. Men would purchase a dignity with a big lump sum of cash. The honour they bought would then pay them an annual salary. But by most modern calculations, the transaction was usually in the state's favour, i.e. more was paid in that initial lump sum than would be paid back before that man died. That might sound like a bad deal, but clearly it was worth it to the elites to be part of the court. Not only was the prestige enviable, but it gave you access to the corridors of power and the chance to rub elbows with the great and the good. For those looking to sort out a tax problem or lawsuit, who wanted to get their son a job in the administration or their daughter a nice husband, it clearly paid off to join the court, even if it was a net financial loss. So let's assume that Monomachos did indeed allow all sorts of merchants and lower-ranking administrators to join the court system. The question then becomes, did he sell them their new titles? raising money for the state, or did he hand them out? If it was the former, then it might have been a reaction to the financial straits the empire was in. If it was the latter, then it was definitely bad practice. But then again, what choice did he have, given that the people were his biggest supporters? In fact, beyond Zoe, they were his only genuine supporters. To add more complexity to this question, we should ask whether any titles were handed out in perpetuity. The reason the system worked well for the government was that men bought an office, and then when they died, they relinquished it, allowing it to be resold to someone else, a constant source of cash being reinvested in the state by the elites. But if you really wanted to buy someone's support, then why not offer him a dignity? that he could then pass on to his son. He would certainly be loyal after that. But the state would then be losing money long after the current resident of the throne had passed away. It's a very complicated question that we don't have an answer to. With hindsight, Selos could see that increasing the expenses of the court had come at a time when the empire was under severe financial strain. It was an open goal, therefore, to point to Monomachos and frame him as the anti-Basil II, a man who paid vagabonds to cheer him while the army withered. 
but this argument looks a bit flimsy from our perspective. According to modern estimates, the military took up about 70% of government spending. It was clearly the Pechenegg Wars that led to debasement, not an expanded civil list. It's also interesting that Pselos's phrasing makes it clear that he objected to the social as much as the financial consequences of these decisions. As the most learned man of his day, it irked Pselos that his own rise to the Senate was cheapened by having to share the stage with a bunch of semi-literate merchants. To conclude for now on the financial issue, clearly Monomachos's new church and his expanded Senate did not help the draining of the treasury that the Pechenegg Wars led to. But both were a function of his lack of legitimacy rather than just bad policy. He clearly needed to buy support to make sure that neither the people nor the army overthrew him, and there was no way he could have anticipated the series of crises he was forced to deal with. As we'll see in future episodes, after the Pechenegg Wars, his focus was entirely on raising revenue and defending the borders. The real problem here was a lack of political legitimacy. Only an emperor who doesn't fear rebellion can do truly unpopular things. So, Monomachos debased the coinage rather than risk being lynched. Not the wisest decision, but an understandable one. Before we go, let's just take a glance at Monomachos's domestic agenda and personal life. I just mentioned Pselos's own rise to the Senate. He had been a humble imperial secretary when the emperor's reign began, but once he proved himself an excellent writer of propaganda, he rose quickly. He was eventually granted the lofty title of Consul of Philosophers, essentially becoming the senior professor of philosophy at the capital and having some kind of wider remit over higher education. His friend, John Zephylinos, was also promoted to be head of the capital's new law school. This was run from the freshly minted Mangana complex and aimed to systematize legal training. These schools were paid for by the state and were open to students from any background. Again, we see here the generosity of Monomachos and the Roman state expanding. We also see the revival of secular learning that had been for so long a low priority in Byzantium. It's one of the ironies of the 11th century. On the back of the conquests and the long absence of Arab raids, the Roman Empire was slowly returning to the levels of wealth and cultural expression that had disappeared back in the 7th century, just as new threats emerged that would ultimately destroy the empire. Many emperors of the past had issued new law books to signify their imperial credentials and their commitment to justice. Monomachos's promotion of the new schools was part of a wider policy to make sure that justice was seen to be done. His government also established a new bureau which would investigate allegations of corruption against provincial judges. Laudable goals that would soon be largely irrelevant. Monomachos himself was in constant ill health, according to Psalos. In addition to the gout which made walking painful, our historian tells us that the emperor developed arthritis and 
diarrhea. We can assume that these stories are partially true. Gout is usually associated with too much good living, and intestinal issues could easily follow from the same path. But Selos's portrayal aims to create an image of Monomachos as literally unfit to rule. He describes him being in so much pain that all he could do was lie on a bed of pillows, not moving an inch for fear of the agony any shift might bring. This was clearly not a permanent state, since Pselos also tells us about the new lover the emperor took. His official mistress Maria died in 1046, leaving the Vasilevs heartbroken. A few years later, he began a relationship with the daughter of a Georgian noble who was resident at court. She was housed grandly and given imperial funds to keep her in suitable luxury. These overt displays of emotion bring more scorn from Pselos, as did the emperor's public display of grief upon the death of Zoe in 1050. The two had enjoyed a good relationship, whatever its true nature was. Her passing at the age of 72 was another step toward the evaporation of Macedonian legitimacy, which was propping the regime up. For reasons we can't recover, Theodora and Monomachos did not get on nearly so well. The two maintained cordial relations at court, but still no arrangements were made for a suitable successor to the throne. Again, Pselos mocks the emperor's lack of care for his imperial position. He claims that Monomachos was lax about posting guards outside his door, trusting in God's protection. Naturally, we then hear of several assassination attempts, one by a court fool who Monomachos had become fond of. As we close our episode today, we have to ponder whether any emperor since Heraclius had faced so many unexpected challenges. Two military rebellions, two steppe invasions, a Rus naval attack, and Norman adventurers loose in Italy. Monomachos must have comforted himself that at least no more surprises were on the horizon. Next time, a visiting papal delegation will excommunicate the Patriarch, an event known to history as the Great Schism. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program.